This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Candy Guthrie Brown is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University. There she teaches and writes on the topics of religion, health, and healthcare management. She also has an academic specialization in evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity. She has published and edited numerous books and more than 50 journal articles, book chapters, and review essays. She earned her baccalaureate, master's, and Ph.D. degrees at Harvard University. Her latest work is The Healing Gods, Complementary and Alternative Medicine in Christian America. It's published by Oxford University Press. In her book, she writes of what she calls, quote, the intriguing and sometimes astonishing story of the mainstreaming of complementary and alternative medicine in America. And she writes with specificity of Christian America. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Professor Candy Gunther Brown. Professor Brown, I think there'll be many people who actually aren't familiar with the term complementary and alternative medicine. But that's been the focus of one of your concerns, and you came to it by an interesting route, as you, as you tell about in the book and in its introduction. How did you come, as an historian, to look at the intersection of Christianity in America and what you identify as CAM, or Complementary and Alternative Medicine? My research started off looking at the growth of Christianity worldwide over the course of the 20th and the 21st century. And... Uh, What I found in that set of research was that one of the primary reasons why Christianity is growing on a global scale is because of divine healing practices. People pray for healing from a Christian God, and they perceive that they're healed through prayer. As I was interviewing Christians who believed that they were healed by God through prayer, I was surprised to find many of these same individuals also were involved in uh, what can be termed complementary and alternative medicine, practices such as chiropractic, homeopathy, meditation, martial arts, yoga, uh, Reiki, therapeutic touch, uh, practices that are actually much more closely tied to other religious traditions such as Hinduism or Buddhism uh, as compared with Christianity. Well, in your book, you describe what you call the intriguing and sometimes astonishing story of the mainstreaming of this uh, CAM, or Contemporary and Alternative Medicine, in America. But you're really writing particularly about the mainstreaming uh, of this movement in American Christianity. And, of course, the, the, the thing that makes your book so interesting is that, uh, as you say, it's intriguing and astonishing because, in many ways, this is the absolutely last subgroup in America you might expect would mainstream and accept this kind of import with associations with very different religions. And so to you as an American historian, this must have been an interesting discovery. Well, it was very surprising because the more closely I looked at the CAM practices, uh, the clearer it became that they are not only historically but currently very tied with religious and spiritual traditions. Uh, And the more closely I looked, the clearer the contrasts became Uh, between the assumptions, the worldviews that underlie many of these CAM practices as compared with a Christian worldview. Uh, And and part of what's interesting here is that there, there are certain overlaps in assumptions. Both 
the CAM and the Christian worldview uh, assume that there is something spiritual. You might describe them as holistic as opposed to materialistic or the idea that there's just science studying material things. Uh, but they're also very different in the sense of relationship between the the world around or kind of creation, one might say, uh, and where where that came from. And so for a CAM worldview, everything's really of the same substance. It might be described as monistic. And so there's not really a, a rigid separation between creator and creation or divine consciousness and nature, whereas in historic Christian theology, there's a very clear se- separation. It might be described as dualism, that there's an outside creator God who is transcending and separate from the creation. Uh, And so therefore, when there are problems in the world, the remedy for those problems are also very different. In the CAM worldview, it's really simply a matter of rebalancing the flow of impersonal energy. Whereas in a Christian worldview, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is actually a person, a member of the Trinity, not just an impersonal energy. And the remedy for the problems of the world or the separation between humans and God is repentance and faith, not just physically unblocking impersonal energy. Use the word astonishing. I think I would even amplify that to say astounding, because this is just one of those stories that has to be told. And and by the way, I think your book is the definitive book thus far uh, on this issue and the intersection of American evangelical Christianity and these uh, movements in alternative medicine. But, But you also do something beyond that, which, so far as I know, no one else has done, you actually deal head-on with the question of uh, efficacy and, uh, and of evidence-based medicine. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. But when you're talking about American evangelicals, it, you're talking about a subgroup that came fairly late to accept this, uh, this alternative medicine movement. In other words, if you were to go back in history, uh, I can remember when evangelicals would have talked about chiropractors and, and many other uh, forms of alternative medicine as, as something – they would have avoided it at all costs. And, and now you've got some forms of yoga being taught in evangelical megachurches. How in the world well, did this absolutely. happen? And, and really it's only the 1960s that this can be traced back to. Uh, and this is where you see uh, immigration law changes. And so it becomes a much more global world. There are a lot more influences in the U.S., Uh, But then there are also cultural changes that take place between the 1960s and the present. And so Christians generally rejected practices like yoga or chiropractic, if they were aware of them at all, as as idolatry, essentially, as being connected with false religions. Uh, And for that matter, medical practitioners generally regarded uh, these activities as medical quackery. And so there's really been a radical transformation in the cultural position and acceptance of these practices really in a very short period of time. Well, an incredibly short period of time. And in that period of time, it appears there was a major theological modification within evangelicalism as well. And I want to talk about that a bit. But before I get to that in particular, uh, you actually do some very careful theological analysis of what evangelicals are up to in terms of, of this very significant, astonishing shift and one of the things you point out is that evangelicals began to define religion as as we understand it in terms of our own faith and worldview, a word-directed, doctrinally structured faith. 
And you point out that left evangelicals in a position in which they basically are able to tell themselves that other belief systems aren't religious because they're, they're not based in the same kind of cognitive structure. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is more true even of Protestants than it is of Catholics, where there is a sense of uh, sacraments and the sacred being conveyed through actions and through symbols. But evangelicals are very focused on belief and very focused on proclamation of the gospel. And that basically leads to a, a lack of recognition that practices can be religious if they don't involve talking about faith. In your book, you say the argument that CAM, that is contemporary and alternative medicine, is spiritual but not religious, when used to reassure Christians and other monotheists that they can practice these things without committing apostasy, makes opaque a basic disjuncture between certain of these alternative worldviews and historic Christian theological traditions. I think that's very well stated. But but it's very interesting that uh, evangelicals, at least in one sense, kind of talked themselves into accepting these things, didn't we? Well, there's there's a desire to accept them, because evangelicals can be just as frustrated with the limits of modern medicine and even with the limits of what churches uh, are offering uh, as compared with everyone else. And so if Christians perceive healthcare practices as being effective, they want to benefit from those practices, and they want to feel reassured that in making use of the practices, they won't be violating their faith. They won't be themselves doing something that they don't feel good about, and that they also won't be looked down upon by other Christians as um, straying from orthodoxy. So let's deal with the very first question you take head-on in your book, and that's the question, if you're looking at contemporary and alternative medicine, are these various forms of therapy and treatment basically religious? You answer that unquestionably they are. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, and I, I wouldn't want to make this as a, a completely generalized and blanket statement because, I mean, even the phrase complementary and alternative medicine, it embraces a great deal. It, it basically includes anything that's not accepted by the medical mainstream as having been validated by scientific studies. Um, but if you start to look at the most popular of these CAM therapies, many of them share the same basic worldview that there is a universal life force energy that flows through the universe and into the human body. The basic problem of sickness is a lack of harmony or balance between humans and that cosmic energy. And the basic solution is to redirect or rebalance that energy flow. Uh, that's really a, a religious set of assumptions. And uh, a lot of what's appealing about these CAM practices is that they do give people a sense of meaning and purpose and their place in the universe. Uh, a lot of the functions that these practices fulfill um, could very easily just be described as religious functions. And beyond that, there are very specific, both historical and current cultural ties to religious traditions, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Western metaphysical spirituality. 
Well, I want to be very honest here and say that one of the reasons I really appreciated your book is that you validated two things, two arguments that I've been making for a very long time. And uh, as I was thinking that on one page, I found myself in your book and the next page, uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> yeah. uh, because I got into a huge controversy some years back. It, it wasn't something new that I was talking about, but it was actually occasioned by a conversation in this program, Thinking in Public. In, in which I responded to uh, to a, a book on yoga, and uh, it was written by uh, Stephanie Simon. It was her book, The Subtle Body, The Story of Yoga in America, just yeah. tracing the story of yoga. And she verified in a very good and substantial way what, what we have been saying for a long time. And, and you come back and give even more uh, background to this. Let's just look at yoga for a moment. In other words, many people now claim that yoga can be without regard to religion. I'm trying to even find the, the best way to put this. There could be a secular yoga, and this gets right down to a controversy in which you were personally involved as an expert witness in a California school district. So, so if you're asked the question straightforwardly, as you were asked by a judge, can yoga be secular? How do you respond to that? Well, I think that it's important, first of all, to recognize that yoga means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and it's developed historically over a very long period of time and in diverse cultural contexts and so uh, I, I do think that context matters and so there there are multiple facets to this question of can yoga be separated from religion uh, and I mean one of the the key things to do is to look at the actual yoga program rather than to just try and generalize and so I I actually want to back away from the question of is yoga inherently religious to look well how is yoga understood in specific contemporary contexts I mean including the the California school district and if you look at that as a, as a case study of this, we find that yoga is being described by the, the organization that funded the program, the K.P. Joyce Foundation, uh, as um, a practice, the, the goal of which is to, quote, become one with God, whether people want it or not. And so Joyce's understanding of what yoga did was even through just the physical postures and the special breathing ex exercises, apart from any discussion of Hindu or other religious beliefs, that would be enough to achieve samadhi, which he defined as this becoming one with God. And these beliefs were taught and, in fact, still are, taught in the Encinitas Union School District. Um, children were taught to chant the mantra Om, which is the kind of was, was described as the sacred sound of the universe, which is equivalent to Brahman or the divine. Children were taught to sit in the lotus position, which is symbolic of enlightenment. They were taught to place their hands in special mudras or positions that are meant to channel sacred energy. So, for instance, a praying hands position, which is meant to instill feelings of reverence, or, or a position with the uh, first finger and the thumb circled around each other to symbolize the subordination of individual consciousness to universal consciousness. Uh, and this is all done in a PE class. Those are religious beliefs. Joyce also taught that the sun salutations, a sequence of uh, poses that starts off yoga classes, that 
Joyce defined that as worship of the sun god, a way to pray to the sun god. I mean, that's, those are direct quotations from the person who was behind this yoga program. So if you were to look at that yoga program in particular, there are elements which are very directly linked to Hinduism. Uh, and despite the judge's claim that, for instance, the lotus was renamed crisscross applesauce. I mean, that's not a claim that's substantiated anywhere in the record. If you look at even the, the revised curriculum that was developed um, during the trial, the term lotus well, the term crisscross applesauce doesn't appear a single time. The term lotus appears 194 times. Uh, and this example of the, the Encinitas yoga program uh, can actually be multiplied many times over. And as you make clear, that's that true in, in, uh, in many evangelical megachurches as well. In your book, you state this, efforts to secularize or Christianize yoga often result in superficial relabeling rather than a creation of fundamentally distinctive practices. And then in an article you wrote in uh, Psychology Today uh, on this uh, situation in California, you wrote, Psychology research on extinction and relearning shows that once a person learns an association, such as a religious association of a yoga pose, the memory of that association doesn't go away, regardless of whether one tries to replace it with new associations. I, I find those two statements to be incredibly informative, thinking about how evangelicals are now embracing the practice of yoga. Well, and I, I think that's right. And I mean, I think partly this is the evangelical assumption that a person's intentions determine whether a practice is religious or what kind of religion that is. And so many Christians will, re will reason, well, for me, this means worship of Jesus, or it's not impersonal energy, we'll just call this energy the Holy Spirit. Um, but what a lot of evangelicals don't recognize is that intentions can actually change through religious practices. Intentions are not stable, um, but practices can change beliefs. And so simply relabeling uh, prana as Holy Spirit uh, or relabeling um, becoming one with God as coming into closer relationship with God, it doesn't necessarily change the effect of engaging in that practice. One of the key insights first gained by reading this new book by Professor Candy Gunther Brown is the fact that on the American medical landscape, there's now an entire world of these complementary and alternative medical therapies and modalities that Americans think of just in terms of increasing comfortability with the brand names they see, with the therapies that are now becoming mainstream in America. And the reality is, and this is where Professor Brown helps us tremendously, there's a history to every single one of these. There is a worldview that is essential to every single one of these. And the worldview and the history stay with these therapies and these alternative medical approaches, even when the language is taken away and the history isn't discussed. The really important thing about this is, and from a Christian worldview perspective, this is crucial, the worldview continues even when the language ends. I think my favorite chapter in your book is the one on chiropractic. Because uh, you, you told me a great deal that I didn't know about the background of that uh, of that movement, 
And my first assumption is I think most people in America have no clue about this. And yet this is the – I'll just tell you a personal anecdote. My mother's an RN, and uh, so I grew up in the house of a a registered nurse. And uh, when the term chiropractic came up in our house, it it was always met with absolute alarm. Uh, as she was trained in, in traditional biomedicine, as you call it. And, uh, and yet now, uh, you know, I've got relatives that will go to the chiropractor as soon as they get a backache. So, so how do we get from this, this point to the other so quickly? And, and if you will, fill in the background in, into where chiropractic came from. Sure. Well, the practice is actually relatively recent. It was developed at the end of the 19th century um, by um, someone who was actually a a practicing mesmerist and a spiritualist, Uh, and his name was uh, Daniel David Palmer. And he, he actually claimed that he got the idea for chiropractic by talking to a physician, but not just any physician, a physician who had died 30 years before. Uh, it was spiritual communication that, was, that he was engaged in. And Palmer thought about declaring chiropractic a religion, but he decided not to because he saw it as a kind of middle ground between medicine and Christian science. Uh, and he believed that basically all religions were the same and all gods were the same. And there was a, a universal life force known as innate intelligence that is actually kind of the creator of everything and the one who sustains life. So that's where D.D. Dee Dee Palmer started things. Now his son, J.D. Palmer, is known as the developer of the profession, and he trained something like 75% of chiropractors over the course of the 20th century, and he actually took an even stronger anti-Christian stance than his father did. He wrote a pamphlet called Do Chiropractors Pray? And his answer was no. No chiropractor would pray to any deity outside of the self because the innate intelligence inside of a person is the only real God, the only divine source. Uh, and so this is so chiropractic from its origins was explicitly anti-medical and anti-Christian. And as late as the 1960s, uh, there was an American Medical Association committee on quackery, the purpose of which was to eliminate chiropractic. Uh, and it really was through court cases that the uh, AMA was forced to stop discriminating against chiropractors. Um, This was the the finding of the Supreme Court that they're um, trying to eliminate the profession was discriminatory. And and so the AMA basically backed away from their anti-chiropractic position, and they started to promote chiropractic. And so this is how we get from this being completely outside of the medical profession to medical doctors and chiropractors working in the same offices. And there's really been a very quick forgetting over the last just several decades of how outside of both the medical and the Christian mainstream chiropractic was. And so of all the practices that I've studied, I think there's Christians are the most enthusiastic uh, about chiropractic, and sometimes in very defensive ways, because uh, there's such a perception of I'm getting something from chiropractors that I'm not getting from my doctor and I'm not getting from my church. One of the things you point out is the, uh, the change in vocabulary in chiropractic that, uh, that can lead people to believe that the worldview has fundamentally shifted w- when there's just a shift in language. For instance, you point out that uh, even as recently as 1996 in a position paper uh, by the uh, Association of Chiropractic Colleges, 
Chiropractic is defined as healthcare discipline that emphasizes the inherent recuperative power of the body to heal itself without the use of drugs or surgery. And you point out that the words inherent and innate are, are directly drawn from that, that worldview, but, uh, but without the associations that, that, uh, that would alarm people and, and help them to know the, the kind of monistic, uh, basically religious worldview that's reflected there. Well, and that's right. And what's even more notable than this shift in vocabulary, which is very strategic and very much oriented towards getting acceptance in mainstream medicine, is that if you look at the same chiropractors who are using medical language in talking to one audience, they use this very spiritual language when they're talking to insiders within their profession and patients who are sympathetic to their spiritual worldviews. And so there's this use of multiple vocabularies to appeal to different audiences, some of which want chiropractic to be religious and some of whom who don't. You know, the most interesting part of your argument there is very subtle, and, and that is that when chiropractic is uh, discussed in a medical context, they want to say it's not religious. They want to insist on that. It's just another form of medical practice. But when someone asks, uh, then what's the distinction, their, their response is pretty religious. That's right. And, it, and it's all about a figuring out what the audiences want to hear and presenting uh, this practice in a way that will not offend people but that will really appeal to these diverse audiences. And so there's a very strategic use of language and even sometimes a camouflaging that takes place through this self-censoring that many practitioners employ. Okay, so I want to ask a blunt question, and and this can hurt uh, American evangelicals, but we need to ask the question. So whose worldview shifted, the worldview of chiropractic or the worldview of the evangelicals who, uh, who, who began to, to use it and to believe it was complementary? Well, I don't see any shift in the worldview of chiropractors. And there was a profession-wide survey that was done just a few years ago by a chiropractor, so someone who's within the profession and sympathetic to all of the concerns of other chiropractors. And basically what this large-scale survey found was that the vast majority of current chiropractors uh, affirm uh, ideas that are very similar to the Palmers who founded the profession at the beginning of the the 20th century. Uh, and, And partly what's interesting and I think confusing for many Christians is that most chiropractors will say that they are Christians. At the same time, most chiropractors will affirm these very metaphysical religious ideas. And so that's where um, there's this idea among evangelicals that if someone says that they're a Christian, they must be a Christian. It's like you, uh, you affirm with your mouth, you confess that Jesus is Lord, and that becomes enough of a validation to assume that everything else that goes with a practice must be Christian. But that's the and hardest so the question. the fact that yeah. chiropractors claim a Christian identity uh, actually makes them less rather than more responsible for demonstrating that their beliefs would fall into what um, patients would consider orthodox Christian um, doctrines. Now, you make some really serious points about how this would impact uh, the the ethics of medicine and and even the constitutional questions. But before getting to that, I want to press this just a bit to ask... um, 
when you think about Christians who are who are looking to these various uh, and and you're careful in the book to say they're not all the same. So there there are some that are uh, that, that are just explicitly uh, metaphysical even now, uh, and, and so there, there's no there's no disguising of it. But the the main part of your narrative is how, quite honestly, uh, these different methodologies or their proponents uh, the the proponents made arguments that this is this is perfectly scientific. It's uh, it, it's you 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 make the point that they've convinced Americans that these things work. When actually, as you point out, there's really very little scientific evidence that they work. So it appears that Americans in general, and American evangelicals specifically, uh, were hungry for this kind of thing and, and, and have been trying to work a way into accepting them by virtually any kind of, uh, of argument that they can accept. Well, I think that's right. I mean, there's an esteem in American culture generally, and that includes evangelical culture. Um, People like things to be scientific, but they want it to be more than scientific. They want it to be natural. They want it to be spiritual. And so it's a very effective marketing strategy to claim something works. There are scientific studies to back it uh, and to simply use even just scientific sounding language can be very persuasive for a public that generally has relatively little specific scientific knowledge uh, or experience in terms of evaluating what scientific evidence um, demonstrates and does not demonstrate. So on most of these movements, uh, if I read your book correctly, there's actually very little evidence to actually uh, look at objectively. Well, and that's true. And I mean, this is why these practices are classified as complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, the term really at its most basic level refers to practices that, they're, that have not been accepted by conventional medical science because there's a lack of scientific validation that these practices are effective. So most Americans simply ask the question about CAM, does it work? Um, But then they don't really press very hard on the question of, well, what exactly is the evidence that this works? Um, They're satisfied, generally, if there are some studies published somewhere in scientific journals. Um, But there's a wide range in terms of the quality of studies that get published and the quality of journals. Uh, really, the, the gold standard in terms of medical research are what are known as Cochrane Systematic Reviews. Uh, it's a database of um, very rigorous studies that are regularly updated that look at double-blinded, randomized, controlled trials, and not just one or a few, but they really look at the quality of the methods. They look at uh, the collective um, evidence that's out there. And if you look at these Cochrane reviews for, for CAM practices, over and over again, the conclusion reached by the reviewer is there is insufficient evidence to recommend this practice medically. Uh, there's, just, there's just not uh, a demonstration that the practice works. Uh, and if you look at something like Reiki, for example, I mean, I think this is an interesting case because there's, there's a whole organization which is devoted to getting Reiki into hospitals. They've been very, very effective, actually. Hundreds and hundreds of hospitals have Reiki programs now. But if you look at this organization's website on scientific research, their own claim is that the best scientific evidence for Reiki comes from two particular studies. They're studies of rats. And between the two studies, they've got a grand total of seven rats that did better in Reiki studies. Nothing about human subjects and no indication of how many studies were done 
before they were able to find two studies in which there were seven rats that did better. So, I mean, that's the kind of level of, of research that we're talking about for, for a number of these popular practices. You make the point, and uh, this is a very serious point, that uh, there are ethical issues involved here because there are people, in particular evangelical Christians, who are uh, sometimes uh, almost coerced into participating in a medical context in some of these practices, and in other ways enticed without any understanding of the religious elements that are actually being imported uh, by the, these practices. I mean, that's a very serious issue. You're, you're suggesting that there's a huge ethical problem in modern medicine. Yeah, I think that there is an ethical issue here. And, I mean, in terms of medical ethics in the law, it's phrased as informed consent. And so the HIPAA forms that everyone has to sign whenever you go into a doctor would be an example of this. And the... The principle of informed consent theory is that someone needs to know what they're consenting towards. And not only medical risks and benefits are relevant, but also long-term goals and values, which would include religious commitments. And so if people are being asked to participate in a practice without being informed that this practice may violate their religious beliefs, then that's an ethical issue. And particularly this is the case if the practitioner has a reason to suspect that there might actually be a religious objection and they're intentionally choosing to um, describe their practice in a way that would overcome that objection, not by persuasion, but by omission of relevant information. I think that's a very interesting point. And, and that gets to a second a very serious issue you raise in terms of public policy. And, and for that, we could simply point to the school district in California again. To what extent do we have an unconstitutional establishment of religion when you have federal funding or, or, or a government support uh, for this kind of practice? Well, I think this is a very germane question because there's the level of um, public schools, according to the Supreme Court's findings, are not allowed to uh, aid one religion, to aid all religions or to uh, provide uh, any kind of uh, endorsement of religion over non-religion. Even if these programs are voluntary, uh, even if there's some kind of secular purpose that's involved, even if they're non-sectarian. And it's for those reasons that, say, school prayer and school Bible reading uh, are not allowed. And so if you have programs such as meditation or yoga in public schools uh, that are uh, promoting, in some sense, uh, religions other than Christianity, it seems that this may raise very parallel issues as prayer and Bible reading. Uh, And then the other aspect of this would be if there's federal funding that is uh, involved. And in fact, there have been some very large federal grants that have been given to uh, different CAM programs. Uh, And so, again, the courts have found that the government cannot sponsor or support religion, whether financially or whether through the endorsement of, say, the public school systems. Uh, But there's been this focus on Christianity as what's religious, Uh, whereas no one's really asked the question, are these programs that come out of religious tradition still religious? Rather, what's happened is policymakers generally tend to just assume 
the promoters of the program say we secularized it. Okay, it's secular, it's outside of the category of religion, and we don't need to worry about these same kinds of establishment clause issues that we would be concerned about if the practice at stake were Christianity. Well, you make that point very clear in a series of articles you wrote for Psychology Today, but that led me to another, and and by the way, just to elaborate on that, uh, you point out that the judge in this case uh, basically uh, shifted the uh, the criterion established in law. He, he said that the children wouldn't know the religious associations and might not recognize them, so it wouldn't be important. But as you point out, there's the reasonable person test. In other words, would, would a reasonable person looking at this see the religious associations? And as you say, they'd be impossible not to see. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a really fascinating finding by the judge, actually, because he concluded that yoga is religious and that the particular kind of program, the Ashtanga yoga program in the schools, he concluded that that specifically was religious and that it was Ashtanga yoga practices that were being taught in the schools. He, he found all of those points, but he used an ignorant child observer standard to make his decision. Uh, and rather than a reasonable observer standard or even an informed child observer standard. Uh, but, but even more interesting than that is if you actually look at, well, what did the kids in the school district think of the yoga program? There was actually quite a bit of evidence that the kids recognized this as religious. That was true both of the children who opted out of yoga and told their teachers, I'm not going to do this pose of putting my hands into a praying position because that feels religious to me. I'm not going to color this mandala because you're telling me that this is a sacred circle that I'm drawing. That feels religious to me. But this is also true of the children who still participate in the yoga program. Uh, They started going to field trips and spontaneously getting into the lotus position and meditating, chanting Om. Uh, so, I mean, they, they were making an association between what was being done in the yoga classes, the supposedly secularized version of yoga, and these very explicitly religious kinds of practices. And so even by the judge's own standard, the children were recognizing that there was something religious taking place in these classes. You know, as I read your book, I immediately thought of headlines uh, in the news these days having to do with the Affordable Care Act and issues of religious liberty. Of course, the contraception mandate that's uh, gone all the way now to the United States Supreme Court. But I, I just immediately had the question, well, well, what in the world are the involvements of, uh, of, this, uh, of this alternative medicine world in, in terms of how many of these CAM practices – are, are going to be covered by, uh, by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, have you thought oh, about I mean, some of those issues? that's a fascinating question, right? Because, I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act actually has very specific language in it that there can't be discrimination against health care providers, and there's specific language to include CAM providers. And so even more than the contraception question, I, I think it's a very live question as to whether there are establishment clause issues involved in Affordable Care Act coverage of alternative medicine. In your book, you describe American evangelicals, and I think you're citing historian Mark Knoll here, as culturally adaptive biblical experientialists. And, uh, you know, when I read your book, uh, against everything that I might hope about evangelicalism, it, it seems that every one of those words is pretty much affirmed in terms of your research. So, so as an outsider looking at, as an academic at American evangelicalism, what would you say about us based upon this particular research project? Well, I mean, I think that evangelicals in America demonstrate a desire to make the Bible 
relevant to American culture. They want to set boundaries and say we're not going to do this kind of set of practices that seem to us inherently corrupting. Uh, but they also want to have a relevance to American culture. They want to uh, effectively evangelize the culture, but they also want to be able to benefit from trends in culture that seem appealing or efficacious. And so there is a real pragmatism uh, in terms of uh, what, what evangelicals do. I mean, this is the culturally adaptive part of, of evangelicalism. And that pragmatism can sometimes lead towards uh, theologically kind of innovative positions of accepting practices that um, hadn't formally been accepted in the past. And, and I mean, here, partly what's so interesting is that there's been a mistrust of religions other than Christianity by Christians, and even a worry about finding out too much about these other religions. And this actually can make it more likely that evangelicals will adopt practices borrowed from the very religious traditions that they mistrust because they're, they're worried about learning too much about them. Uh, and then this has kind of a double impact because not only are evangelicals practicing activities taken from other religions, but then because practices can change beliefs, they sometimes actually find themselves adopting the religious assumptions of these other worldviews and shifting their own theological positions yeah. and, and really even shifting their fundamental worldview assumptions. With tremendous insight, you write on page 159 of your book, in today's religious market, churches that want to attract large memberships can ill afford to offend those who find CAM appealing. And I think that really hits us. Uh, you know, I, I even, to be honest, I've had the, the thought as, I, as we're having this conversation and as I anticipated having it, there, there could be people uh, I know and love and, 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 and people with whom I worship and, and, and people uh, I greatly respect who might be deeply involved in these things without having thought about many of the ramifications. So I, I, this does hit kind of close to home. And I, I think that sentence in your book, whether it's ascribed to pragmatism or just a missiological concern, gets right at the point at which I think American evangelicals aren't sure how big an issue this is. Well, I think that's right. And there are many evangelicals who if they knew more about not only the history, but the current cultural and religious associations of CAM practices, they wouldn't want to be involved in them. Uh, there are other evangelicals who are so personally invested in the perceived benefits that they're getting from CAM practices that they're probably more inclined to rationalize rather than change their participation. Uh, and this can lead to, as you suggest, a real defensiveness uh, about practices uh, and can, can lead to, to real offense against anyone who is perceived as criticizing practices that feel like they work yeah. and feel like they're beneficial. Well, one of the things we must always keep in mind is that we should never be afraid to know more. Uh, because in this case, uh, faithfulness requires knowledge. I hope this conversation uh, contributes to that, and I know your book has. And I just want to thank you again for your book, The Healing Gods, Complementary and Alternative Medicine in Christian America. And I just have, want to ask you, Professor Brown, uh, what's next on your agenda? I, I, I look at your bibliography, and I've, I've ordered the books, by the way. I want to read every single one of them. What's coming <laughs> up next? 
Yeah, actually, I'm very excited about this next uh, project, and maybe some of your readers will want to help me with this, or listeners, rather. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a book about meditation and yoga in public schools. Uh, and I'm interested in private as well as public schools, and I'm interested in college as well as K-12. through uh, But I really want to look nationally at the kinds of meditation and yoga programs that are being presented as secular uh, and to look at specific components of those programs uh, that might be classified as religious. How can we tell people to, uh, to get in touch with you about that project? Uh, I can be emailed through the university at brown, like the color, cg at indiana.edu, and I can simply be Googled Candy Gunther Brown at Indiana University, and I would be happy to talk with any of your listeners. Professor Brown, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure to have you thinking in public. It was a great pleasure to speak with you as well. So it was about four years ago that I found myself in a major controversy over the issue of yoga and Christianity. It was not something I had anticipated or predicted, and it came about largely through the catalyst of a conversation on this program, a conversation with another academic dealing with the issue of yoga and its history and its worldview. The reality is that I discovered something in that controversy, and that's this. There are many people who don't want to talk about this. There are people who certainly don't want to know more about this. I actually was confronted by some Christians with some very informed discussion points. But by and large, I was confronted with people who said, I don't want to know anything about the background of yoga. It has nothing to do with yoga as I now experience it. And thus, I don't want to have the conversation. And I don't want you talking about it either. That's why this new book by Professor Candy Gunther Brown is so important because, quite honestly, it is the most extensive, academic, credible, largely irrefutable background study to these new forms of medicine, or at least what is called medicine, these complementary and alternative medical approaches. And she writes with incredible perception about how these issues, these new approaches, became mainstreamed in Christian America. I think we can see how they would become mainstreamed in America at large. An America that has continued the pattern of separating theology and spirituality, or religion and spirituality. An America that is increasingly secular and syncretistic. In other words, we kind of expect now that our neighbors are going to put together worldviews with a little bit from biblical Christianity and a little bit from various secular philosophies and a little bit from this and that, adding a little New Age here and a little Hinduism or Buddhism there. The reality is that we expect that of our neighbors, but we think we are opposed to it ourselves. And sometimes we even think we are immune to it ourselves because we're the kind of people who simply wouldn't and couldn't do that. But the warning to every single one of us as evangelical Christians in this book is that it is very possible that we are doing that which we oppose. We're doing that which we know faithfulness in terms of our Christianity would forbid. We're doing things in terms of how we fail to think through so many of these approaches that would alarm us if we actually took the time to think about it, which is what I hope we do based upon not only this conversation, but this important new book. I mean, quite frankly, the issue is truth. And that's where Christians are supposed to know at the advance and to be committed from the very beginning to knowing that where the truth leads will take us to Christ and to the Scriptures and to consistency with everything that is revealed in the Bible. And the truth will take us to a place where we understand that when we measure all things by the Scripture, we simply have to let the Scripture judge everything, every idea, every worldview, every hypothesis, every theory, or every medical modality for that matter as well, every medical approach. So when we look at this, I think it is a test of our Christian faithfulness. 
And, and so my encouragement to all of us is simply the encouragement of the Apostle Paul to the Bereans. Test it by Scripture, but test it knowledgeably. We have to know what these things really do represent. And, of course, we are inherently pragmatic. That might be the besetting sin of American evangelicalism. But we also have to understand that if we're dealing with someone who was in pain and isn't in pain now, they're glad to be relieved of that pain. And it doesn't actually help to tell them that they aren't relieved of that pain. But the consistency with a Christian worldview, with all that is revealed in Scripture, is our responsibility. And thus we have to pastorally and very carefully think through these issues theologically. And then we also have to understand that not all things that come with a good result are actually good. As a matter of fact, if we just use that fruits argument without looking at the roots, and by the way, Professor Brown gets at that evangelical logic, then we can actually go in very many wrong directions because there are all kinds of false realities. There are all kinds of false religions that lead to some good results. But Christians are supposed to be the people who know that those good results don't vindicate the truth claims that are false. As I mentioned in my conversation with Professor Brown, she cites Mark Knoll, prominent evangelical historian, as defining American evangelicals as, quote, culturally adaptive biblical experientialists. Let's just look at those four words for a moment. Culturally and adaptive, those two words put together mean that we are experts at adapting to the culture. Now, that's been in one sense the secret of evangelical success, because we do understand the necessity of adapting to the culture. We have buildings with air conditioning. We, we, we have credentialed ministers. We have nurseries that are safe for children. In other words, we understand how to adapt to the culture. We use language. We use advertising. We use all kinds of messaging, and we understand that. Younger evangelicals have learned to adapt by the, the adoption of things like social media. We understand how these things work. But when you put that together with the next couplet of words, biblical experientialists, you can see where there's a problem. But when you put that together with their second coupling, those two words, biblical experientialists, you understand why those first two added to the second two can be so deadly dangerous. Because if indeed our biblicism is merely that we are biblical experientialists, then we're in big trouble. Because even as we know that genuine Christian experience is essential to authentic Christianity, it is the truth that precedes the experience, not the experience that precedes the truth. And our experience has to be judged by the truth. The truth isn't to be judged by our experience. That's exactly what we are taught in Scripture, and it is exactly the command that we are to obey. It's the pattern of Christian thinking that alone will maintain evangelical Christianity as both evangelical and Christian. And the truly hard issues raised by this book have to do with not only public policy, with issues such as what will take place in the schools and, and what the Affordable Care Act will fund and, and how you will have uh, the potential of a genuine establishment of religion and a funding of religion through a national health insurance and through school districts and other forms. The biggest issue for Christian readers is going to have to be what it says about American Christianity. And the warning that she offers as an outside academic looking at American evangelicalism, saying to American evangelicals, you're not thinking in very evangelical terms here. You're not really being consistent to your theology. And when you get a warning like that from someone from without, we better pay particular attention. And I think the conversation with Professor Candy Gunther Brown has made that abundantly clear. But it's a conversation that needs to begin. And the way to continue this conversation is by reading her book, and wanting to know not only all that she talks about in documents in her book, but even more. That's where this needs to lead, to a deeper conversation and a deeper consideration of these issues, testing everything by the Scripture.
Thanks again to my guest, Professor Candy Gunther-Brown, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mulder.